0: Visit bankofamerica.com/slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.
1: Hello, and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Cucquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how a new glove for humans is teaching robots how to feel.
0: What it allows you to do is make a pressure map of an object. It turns the physical forces you use with your hand into something that computers can understand.
1: And what we can learn from the industrial revolution in today's world of automation and robots.
2: I think it's important to remember that what began with the construction of the first factories and ended with the construction of the railroads also ended with the publication of the Communist Manifesto. Revolutionary technologies brought a lot of political revolutionaries along the way.
1: But first... Before a vaccine became widely available in the 1960s, measles was a common childhood disease. And although infection meant you had a lifelong immunity, it still had consequences. Measles caused as many as 500 deaths and 50,000 hospitalizations in America alone. In the decades that followed, routine childhood vaccination in Western countries made measles increasingly rare. In recent years, however, outbreaks have become more frequent with no sign of abating. To discuss why and what needs to be done to solve the problem, I'm joined by Slaveja Chankova, the Economist Healthcare correspondent. Hello, Slavea. Hello, Ken. Slaveya, why is there a sudden resurgence of measles?
3: That's a very good question. And Oftentimes, it's been blamed on parents refusing to vaccinate their children. However, it's become increasingly clear in recent outbreaks that a lot of the problem is actually due to adults not being vaccinated. So in Europe, for example, in the past three to four years, about a third of measles cases have been in people older than 20 years.
1: So what's the solution if that's the case?
3: The solution is uh, catch-up campaigns, uh, vaccination campaigns. So those are people who have not been vaccinated when they were children or perhaps had only one instead of the two measles jabs that are now standard. And the group that has the biggest immunity gap varies by countries. It really depends what happened you know, years ago when those people were children and had to be vaccinated. In some countries, in Italy, for example, the median age of people who've had measles in recent years has been 27 years. It means that more than half of people with measles have been older, than that. So clearly, you can't stop current outbreaks by focusing on children alone. Of course, children are—they suffer the most complications. Almost half of deaths from measles have been among infants. Oftentimes, those who are too young to be vaccinated. And in many cases, they would catch measles from an adult, not a child.
1: Isn't what's required then an educational campaign against the parents to make sure that the kids are vaccinated so we don't have, in the future, this unvaccinated population.
3: That's an absolute prerequisite. So this problem doesn't continue to build up over time, but that's by no means the only thing you could do to stop current outbreaks. You do need to focus on adults as well.
1: What about the vaccination program itself? Can we change it in other ways to make it more effective?
3: So one developing wrinkle in the vaccination schedule is that babies get measles antibodies from their mothers during the pregnancies. And those antibodies protect them against measles for a couple of months after birth until they're old enough to be vaccinated. The problem is that when the antibodies come from a mom who has been vaccinated versus a mom who has had them through natural infections, they protect the baby for two to three months less so the question is whether, you know, nowadays, pretty much all babies are born to moms who have not been infected when they were children.
1: So, survey it sounds to me like you're suggesting that babies should be vaccinated earlier.
3: It's a tough question, Ken, uh, because the vaccine is not very effective in babies who are younger than one year. So if you vaccinate them at an earlier age, then you would still need to give the two vaccine boosters later on in age. And currently you have lots of parents concerned about giving their children too many vaccines. So convincing them to give an extra jab, which may be only partially effective, may be a tough sell.
1: So we shouldn't fear vaccinations. It should go to kids, but it should go to adults as well. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Slavia. Thank you, Ken. And you can read more about the spread of measles in the current edition of The Economist. And while you're in the waiting room expecting your vaccination jab, why not try out a subscription? On your smartphone, just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12.
3: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. with Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.
1: The human hand is incredibly complex, and so too is replicating this in robots. But a team of computer scientists at MIT have developed a new glove that is able to translate this complicated process to help improve the grasp of robots. To discuss this, I'm joined by Alok Jha, the economist science correspondent. Hello, Alok. Hi, Ken. Let's start with the problem. Why is it so difficult to program a robot to pick things up?
0: So, a robot that tries to grasp things in the real world, the way it does it normally is to look at the object and then try and recognise it and then use sort of pre-programmed strategies to go and use its robotic hands to press or pick it up, which is fine because computer vision has got much, much better over the last decade, and so you lots of computers can recognise things. but unfortunately, you can misrecognize things and pick up an egg in the wrong way, thinking it's a golf ball or something like that. And so th- the only way to improve computer grasp is to give computers feedback but also just to help computers to do what we humans do very naturally without thinking. When you pick something up, you understand quite instinctively how much pressure to put in all your fingers because you've got receptors in your hands that give your brain feedback. So over time, you learn how to pick different things up um, based on that. And so what this new glove tries to do is understand... How you use your hand, how much pressure you put in different places, what the sort of grip feels like, how, how you use your hand and what pressures you're using in order to build a sort of database for computers to then do the same thing with their own robotic hands.
1: And so how were the researchers able to actually crack this nut?
0: So, until now, it's actually been quite difficult to integrate electronics into fabrics in a way that is sort of high resolution enough to do this. So if you want to pick something up and measure the forces at each different individual point in your hand, it's actually quite difficult to do that. So what you've got is a knitted glove, and on the palm side of this knitted glove is a film which, if you pr- apply pressure, will give you an electric current. and. A grid of wires on this um going horizontally and vertically over the palm, and wherever the grid the wires meet, that is essentially like a small receptor, and you can measure the pressure at that particular point in your palm. so you put the glove on and you manipulate an object you pick up i don't know a cup or a pen. The machine can then record exactly which bits of your hand are pressing on this thing uh, when you're picking it up when you're you know manipulating it in some way. And in this piece of research, what the researchers did was they took this glove and asked people to manipulate 26 common objects. So like I said, a cup, a pen, a spoon. And they manipulated these objects for several minutes. And so they recorded essentially a video of the pressure as it changes on your hand. So it turns the physical forces you use with your hand into something that computers can understand.
1: I think I've got it. I think it's ingenious in terms of the ordinary world, but there's going to be certain domains in which this is going to be absolutely extraordinary. And the way would be people who already wear gloves. The first would be safety gloves for people like who are mechanics, but more interesting still, surgeons. You can imagine many doctors in operating theater and nurses using this glove in their surgical gloves and being able to create over time the right machine to actually do the right touch and you can imagine robotic surgery evolving over time with the help of this.
0: Exactly. Robotic surgery is an example that one of the researchers gave me for one of the uses of this in future because it requires feedback for the robot which maybe doesn't have. Dangerous places if you want to pick up nuclear waste uh, or something, which you know you probably don't want to do with your own hand, but there are probably ways of uh, manipulating these things. What they did also find is even from this 26 objects that someone manipulated – They found they understood a bit more about how the bits of the hand work together to create grip. So if you're using your first finger to grip something, how likely is it you use your thumb as well as your third finger and so on? All these bits of information which we've never had before about the hand because we just haven't been able to measure the forces that your hand operates with, all of that will improve robotic limbs for people who need those in the future.
1: That's great. Alec, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Finally, as we make robots even better, what can we learn from the history of technology and the Industrial Revolution? That is the subject of a new book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation, by the economic historian Carl Benedict Frey. Now, Carl is famous for sounding an alarm bell several years ago with a paper that he co-authored with a colleague, saying that there was a jobs apocalypse coming – That almost half of all jobs in the West are vulnerable to automation. He directs the program on technology and employment at the University of Oxford's Martin School, and he joins me now in the studio. Hello, Carl, and welcome to Babbage. Pleasure to be here. Carl, how worried should people be that
2: their jobs are going to be done by a robot or an algorithm? Well, I think it depends on what you do, right? It's as simple as that. I mean, historically, automation has been confined to relatively routine, repetitive tasks that can easily be specified in computer code and therefore readily automated. What we're seeing now is that top-down computer programming is no longer necessarily required for automation to happen. We can feed algorithms the data, the experience that we have. They can draw upon that and learn how to perform certain activities like medical diagnostics, like driving a car, like performing translation, and they're gradually improving upon us in those domains. Many people look at the industrial revolution
1: and they see a rosy outcome, but you look a little bit more closely and you see that the story is not as easy as we think.
2: Yeah, I think the long term consequences are very gross indeed. I mean, it's been a tremendous sort of upward trending growth in people's wages over the very long run. And I think income alone uh, underestimates sort of the tremendous. transformative effects these technologies have had on people's lives. But the short run is a very different matter, right? In the short run, and what economists regard as a short run, by the way, uh, can be a lifetime for some. So for uh, five decades, wages were stagnant, probably even falling at the bottom end of the income distribution. And as people didn't see their working lives uh, improve as a result of technological change, they quite rationally rioted against the mechanized factory. And the way that the British government responded on several occasions was by sending out troops against the rioters. So I think it's important to remember that what began with the construction of the first factories and ended with the construction of the railroads also ended with the publication of the Communist Manifesto. Revolutionary technologies brought a lot of political revolutionaries along the way. So do you expect a similar
1: problem insofar as wages declining, Jobs being eradicated, the police function of the state quelling incredible unrest based on inequalities and new political philosophies coming from this?
2: Well, I think many of the economic trends that we're seeing today in our age of computerization and automation look very similar to sort of the onset of the first industrial revolution. So wages have been stagnant. They've been falling for especially men with no more than a high school degree who would have sort of taken on jobs in the factories before uh, the age of automation. And we're also seeing a growing polarization of our politics as well in response to that. New jobs are emerging, but they are primarily emerging in skilled cities where, you know, there's an abundance of knowledge-producing companies and skilled people. And automation has had the opposite effect in places that specialized in routine repetitive tasks. It has taken jobs in those places. And this has created sort of a growing divergence between, let's say, sort of as a caricature, Detroit and the Bay Area. And because many of the people that have benefited from the technology no longer lives in the same communities as those who have lost out, they're essentially stuck in very different realities. And I think this has created a rather unfortunate spiral that's also being reflected in our politics today. So what will the labor market of the future look like and
1: what kind of solutions will take the edge off?
2: So one of the points I make in the book is that we don't know what the future labor markets will look like because the short run can also, potentially determine the long run. One of the reasons that Britain was the first country to industrialize was essentially that industrialization was enforced on the working population. In France, industrialization first sort of happened during the revolutionary era, and because people were very concerned with the disruptive effect those technologies could have with people going out and writing even more, industrialization was essentially brought to halt. And this is something that we've seen throughout history over and over again, that new technologies at times have actually been blocked. And I think we need to carefully consider the short-run dynamics of the political economy of the adoption of these technologies. If people don't perceive it as likely that they will eventually come out ahead and benefit from technological change, they are more likely to opt against it. So what do we need to do as a society in response I don't think there is one solution. So I'm not a subscriber to universal basic income as the solution to everything. But I think that there are a lot of smaller steps that can be taken that collectively uh, make a big difference. So, for example, I think investments in early childhood education is vital because we know that early deficits in math and in reading just become larger and larger over time. So people that have deficits in math, for example, are much less likely to go to college, much less likely to participate in political disciplines course and so on and so forth. So I think interventions in terms of investment in the education early on um, are absolutely critical. Um, I also think that relocation vouchers that help people to move to places where new jobs are emerging are vital as well because moving is in a way an investment, right? You need liquidity upfront to move to a place where a new job might be available for you. And some people don't have the financial means to move, which is also one of the reasons that we see seen that geographical mobility has declined over the past 20 or 30 years or so. And and lastly, I think that we need to do something about housing, because what's happened in these sort of prime locations where skilled tech industries cluster is that there's a lot of new demand for in-person type of services. And when people move into these places, they drive up house prices, which sort of exacerbates growing inequality. Now I'm not claiming that I have the, all the solutions here today, but I do think that the many little steps in the right direction can certainly help people adjust and if you look across space right when I go home to my home country which is Sweden there's much less concern about automation uh, than in the United States. Why? I believe that this has something to do with a social safety net and people feeling more secure in the possibility of them losing their jobs in such a society. We will certainly find
1: out. Carl, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. As regular Babbage listeners know, we regularly give away a book to one lucky listener who answers a question. This week, we're giving away Carl Benedict Frey's book, The Technology Trap. And we're giving it away to one lucky listener with the answer to the following question. If AI and robots are threatening human jobs, in the future, what jobs might humans steal from the robots? Send your answer to radio at economist.com. And the best answer, based on our unscientific and completely subjective analysis, will be read out and a copy of the book will be sent out. And staying on the subject of book competitions, several weeks ago, we ran a competition to win a signed copy of Sir David Spiegelhalter's book, The Art of Statistics. We asked listeners to answer the following sentence. There are three kinds of truth, dot, dot, dot. And we got so many answers that it has taken us a while to really come up with our favorite. Here is a sample of the entries that we liked. There are three truths. There's my truth, your truth, and the truth. There are three truths, The Mean, The Median, and The Mode. Another listener wrote in My Truth, My Opponent's Truth, and The Observer's Truth. Yet another wrote The Precise, The Sublime, and The Kind Your Mother Tells You. Another that we liked was by one listener who wrote News, Fake News, and The Economist. A cute one that made the short list was The Optimistic Truth, The Pessimistic Truth, and The Statistical Truth. And the winner is Yagub Aliyev, who writes, There are three types of truths, proved ones, opened ones, and those which had a proof that was too large to fit in the margin. We are going to ship out a copy of the book right away, and we want to thank everyone who participated and sent in an answer. And that's all for this week's Babbage. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.